students still find radio relevant, but they don't listen to it necessarily on the radio. They're, they're listening to it on their phones. But it really is about the programming. It's about the content. If you can keep it engaging, you can keep it relevant. Uh, if you go out into the communities, if you get people telling stories, those kinds of things still matter to people. There is still tremendous power in helping people feel like they're connected with others. I think that we should be training people to be civically engaged and to be using all the tools in their toolbox to change the narrative out there. And I see radio as one of the many tools that we can use. Welcome to Radio Survivor. My name is Paul Reese Bedell. And with me here is... Jennifer Waits. And our my faithful co-host, co-producer. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein. It's so good to be here at the Grassroots Radio Conference. Thank you for having us. And we have two amazing, wonderful guests who are going to help us dig deep and tackle some hard questions here. Uh, first up, we have Ernesto Aguilar, Program Director for the National... Ernesto, say hi into the microphone so people can hear your voice. Ernesto, say hi. Thank you, Portland. There we go. <laughs> From the National Federation of Community Broadcasters and Vanessa Maria Graber. Hello. And we're recording live today at the Grassroots Radio Conference. We're in, what is the name of this room? Native American <laughs> Student and Community Center. Native American Student and Community Center. A wonderful, <laughs> giant, cavernous room where the good people here at the Grassroots Radio Conference have just recently uh, eaten dinner. Today's topic you know, here at the Grassroots Radio Conference, it's wonderful because we have the opportunity to really get down and, and think about what's going on today and really tackle problems all of us are facing. Um, what we're going to do with this little session here is to think about community radio in five years, community radio in 2023. It doesn't seem so far away, but yet it kind of is. And to kind of set us up there, one thing I want us all to acknowledge right here, because this is something that everybody listening to this show and everybody in this room is part of, that we have seen the greatest flowering of non-commercial community radio in history in the last 18 years. We've seen more stations go on the air in the last 18 years than ever before. And that's, and, and look, this is hard work. You're all doing it right now. And we know that, that for many of you, it's, it's, it's a day-to-day -day struggle, week-to-week -week struggle, fiscal year-to-fiscal year struggle. But I think it's really important for us to recognize that, that we're, that we're really celebrating uh, this amazing, amazing cultural flowering. And so if we look five years into the future, many stations that went on the air in the 2013 window are going to be on the cusp of celebrating a decade on the air. Think about that. Many of you will be thinking about your decade. Stations from the first window that happened in the early 2000s will be looking at their second decade, maybe even their first quarter century. So it seems far away, and yet in many ways it's not. In 2023, I mean, there's even like historical like circumstances there, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about the entire history of radio in the early 1920s is when you had this massive growth of AM radio stations and possibly the first high school radio station launched in 1923 here in Portland um, at Benson Polytechnical High School, KBPS. Woo. So think Still of it, on the air? 
still on the air. Still so on they'll the air. be celebrating their hundredth anniversary in five years. Um, and then personally, my own college radio station had an AM station that launched in 1923. So in five years, we're thinking about a hundred plus years of radio. So it's pretty amazing. And, and so one of our missions here with Radio Survivor is, is, is education, right? We hope to be of use to people who are in radio and who love radio. And then for the stations who air us, we hope that we're educating your listeners. Community radio is supposed to be participatory, and I think that's something I keep hearing. I've heard many times in the last two days. And that means pulling back the curtain and letting listeners understand what it is you do. And sometimes a listener who hears your cool station doesn't realize there's hundreds of others like it. And we hope to be part of that education process as well, to help sort of build that greater knowledge and maybe help folks understand this isn't just a one-off. This isn't uh, something that just happens, but it's a movement. It is, there are dozens and hundreds and thousands of people who put in hard, long hours individually in groups and, of course, in Washington to make community radio happen. And that's something we hope to share. And that's where I want to start here is with education. Um, yesterday, I met in person for the first time Vanessa Maria Graber from Philly Cam. And so that is a, a, a both a uh, PEG station, a public access TV station, but you're the general manager of your LPFM station. And Vanessa and I talked before on the phone a couple of years ago, if not three years ago, for Radio Survivor. And you were telling me about your, um, your training program. And one of the things you mentioned to me is that you include training about what is community media. T tell me, what, why do you do that? What do you do with these new, these new people fresh to, to community radio? Well, we discovered in Philly when we were telling people about our community radio station, they didn't know what it was. Uh, they didn't really know what public access was either um, because Philly has not had community radio or public access until recently. And so, um, you know, you're trying to get people to get involved in your community media project, but they have no context or frame of reference for what that is. And furthermore, uh, you know, when I was at the University of North Carolina and I was teaching journalism and radio production to students and following their curriculum, they too do not learn about alternative, radical, independent media or community media. Um, and so they're sort of uh, training people to this, like, be conditioned to only know and expect mainstream commercial media. And people really weren't aware that there was an alternative. Mm -hmm. And so we also were talking to people about more horizontal models of governance. They're so used to hierarchies and like things happening from like the top down. So explaining to them what the word participatory means, what it means to uh, serve your community through a community radio station, and identifying what those specific communities were. And so um, in explaining to people who we are and how we do things and why we have it set up in this really different structure, um, we were educating people about community media and then telling them it's not just us, we're part of a whole network of stations and this is a movement. It's not just our station, it's bigger than us. We're all doing this together uh, to change the narrative, which is ultimately... Uh, why we get into broadcasting, right, to put a message out there. 
And I think that that made all the difference because we were having these general orientations and people, they just were confused. Like, what is this democratic participatory structure that's inclusive? And, you know, they, they didn't know what that meant. And also people are so conditioned to want to monetize and commercialize and commodify everything. So teaching them that, like, me, not all media is is money or profit driven, right? That information, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, should be free and accessible to all. So um, we had to explain the differences in that, and so that for us was really effective in then um, getting the kind of participation that met our needs as a community broadcaster. Well, Vanessa Graber of Philly Cam and WPPM in Philadelphia, what? What is participatory media? What do you tell these people who are coming into your stations to make media? How do you, how do you describe that to them? So participatory media is where you get to take part in the decision making and participate in the leadership and create the culture and the guidelines of which we operate. And that's something when I worked in commercial radio, I did not have access to as a lone reporter, low on the totem pole. You know, I could not affect the decisions at CBS or Clear Channel. Um, And I very often felt frustrated by the programming guidelines and things we had to abide by in our local stations. So, you know, you have to turn that on its head and allow people to come up with the programming guidelines and the themes and set the priorities for content. And they're like, oh, you mean you're not going to tell us the songs that we have to play? And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> um, but we can set guidelines for the kind of music like we want to play, such as independent artists from our local area. And then we also have to teach people about democratic governance. So that's the other part of participation is that, me- that what that physically looks like is going to three or four committee meetings a year, mm-hmm. submitting proposals for ideas, getting buy-in from your peers, uh, volunteering, teaching new people, giving back, um, participating in outreach events, um, setting the agenda for meetings, coordinating your own decentralized meetings, um, things like that. People are just... They, they weren't trained on how to self-govern. Right, right. Um, and so we got to teach people yeah, models we don't, we for don't that. get taught that in kindergarten. I bet the most we get taught is everyone raised their hand and the majority wins, right? But not really how to, how to, how to make things work in, in a cooperative sort of way. Ernesto, you know, you're working with dozens of stations, community stations around the country. And now, At the if, National Federation of Community Broadcasting. Yes. If, so thinking about 2023 and stations need to educate this new class of broadcasters that come in every so often. What do they need to think about for 2023 that they should be starting to, to teach now? What, what are skills that, that the next generation of community broadcasters need to have? Well, I think first and foremost, what Philly Cam is doing is dynamic and really beautiful in many respects because Schools are facing a lot of pressures right now because of funding cuts and a lot of curricula that 
a lot of expectations are already being put on teachers. Parents are under pressure already to raise the kids that they can. Adults have pressure trying to make ends meet. And this kind of effort for media literacy and education and to be better citizens within a democracy is, I think, at the heart of what community radio is all about, giving people an opportunity to see that they are not alone giving them a chance to see that there is a hope out there and there is a new possibility that oftentimes those of us who are not otherwise exposed to these things just don't get. I was raised in East Houston. I was raised around a community that wasn't exposed to community or public radio. And a lot of those individuals just don't necessarily have the conversations that Philly Cam is leading. And a lot of these community radio stations give to people and bring out to people. and. Community radio stations like the folks who are in this room give of themselves and of their energy and of their time in a way that helps people become their best selves without an expectation of getting anything back. And I think that's an important thing that this society really genuinely needs right now, first and foremost. I want to get to your question, but I want to acknowledge that <laughs> no, yeah, in this yeah. room because what... What Vanessa said, I think, is really important to really think about. Right now, in this moment, culturally, politically, socially, this is the kind of conversation that we need to be having, that we have an opportunity here to really grow this media in such a dynamic and innovative way that people just may not otherwise recognize every day. And these stations are serving that kind of purpose for a better country and for a better democracy. Mm -hmm. um, to your question, in the next five years, I think what Philly Cam and what many community radio stations are doing around digital, around multi-platform programming and around podcasting are really, really important. NFCB recently did a survey of community radio stations and about 30 to 40% are doing podcasting. Some of them are repackaging programming and some of them are doing original podcasts and others are trying to reach out on social platforms and trying to engage people in different ways, trying to find who that audience is that they're trying to connect with and having that conversation first because you can certainly get on Facebook, get on Instagram and all these other things, but unless you really understand who you're trying to connect with, that is going to be really for naught because there are so many content providers right now, but for those stations that are out there doing it, that's really wonderful and I think in the next few years that's going to be really crucial for stations to be in. That brings to mind, there have been conversations at this conference about reaching your audience where, they're, where they are and also conversations about reaching young people and I think what both of you have just brought up kind of addresses that intersection of education and also reaching younger audiences and thinking five years from now, what do we even think radio is going to be? So Vanessa, you know, what do you think, is it going to be at your station? Are you going to be thinking about the terrestrial signal predominantly or something we haven't thought of? Well, when they take away the internet, radio is going to make a big comeback. <laughs> Do you want to name names, Vanessa Graber? Who's taking away the internet? You know who's taking it away. No, but you're not. I, it's kind of, it's a good, it's a joke line here in the room, but I'm seriously, like, you're not joking. So I'm what, not joking. Um, should I say what it is? You mean that uh, if network neutrality is eroded further, the thing that was the internet, you know, in 2002, uh, no longer looks or functions like the internet in 2022, and 
the kinds of uh, open access to all sorts of information, especially uh, streaming media, is closed because of the pipes. The pipes. I don't want to paint a dystopian future because I'm a naturally optimistic person, but I don't want to underestimate the current threat and the series of actions the FCC has taken to hack away at our access to information. And they started by eliminating the main studio rule, trying to take away the lifeline program, increasing the media ownership cap, uh, taking away net neutrality, uh, trying to ram through all these translator applications to infringe upon LPFM. Uh, the threat is is really real, and so um, I take seriously the responsibility that we have in sustaining our stations and really um, finding diversified funding sources and collaborations and strategic partnerships to make sure that we are indispensable in the community no matter what happens, and to keep our station safe and to keep uh, provocateurs and infiltrators and other disruptors out of our station because that also happens and um, I think that we will play an important role if we are truly community based and building and doing work outside the studio which means uh, being a part of the leadership in your community of stakeholders and people that have an important voice and a constituency of real listeners that identify with your values in a station. And so I hope in the next five years that we will have grown our listenership and our community of support, that we will have trained and educated uh, thousands more people, that we will have um, let people know that there is a really important and growing independent media across the country. And if we could reach those goals, then I would be really happy even if we do get the internet and more access to communication infrastructure uh, taken away. Vanessa, I'm gonna, I'd like to ask you to follow up and kind of maybe, maybe concretize this a little bit. I mean, I don't, you don't need to explain everything, but I'm thinking 2023, right? And I think, you know, these are the volunteers who are coming into your station today and tomorrow and next year and the following year. And how do you actualize that being part of the community? So you need to get outside of your station, right? Can you, can you give me an example and, and how that might, you know, engage uh, a young person who doesn't own a radio, doesn't listen to, to the radio, even if they may listen to radio-like things? Well, supporting what other good things are happening in your community. So deploying your programmers to support local music and the arts and, uh, you know, uh, direct actions and social movements and other interesting things. And that's why I say collaborations and partnerships are really important because you can work with other people in the community that can give you exposure so and what kind of, what kind of organizations, you know? Like working with the libraries and bringing radio into the libraries and setting up podcasting and recording stations and being able to talk to people that hang out in the libraries um, by working with people who are in reentry programs and being able to reach people that are formerly incarcerated. 
We have a partnership with the Juvenile Detention Center to mm. get audio and have um, content wow. from high school students who are being detained right now. Um, we have partnerships with other independent media who can repurpose their content. So if they have a documentary or an online story or a publication, they can come on to our platforms to share that message in another way. Um, like I said, we're, it's, it's this whole idea of intersectionality, right? Like with other movements and showing how media can support all those different things. And mm -hmm. so it's reciprocal in nature as well. And I think the Allied Media Conference is a really good place to show all that the That happens in Detroit annually, right? Yeah, to show all the intersectionality between movements and the arts and music and the academic part of it. Um, and again, like we can't isolate ourselves in our studios and just focus on mm -hmm. content creation. We're so much more than that. We have this power that people are not tapping into in terms of being like uh, representatives and advocates for people in the community. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think this has been a common tension. It's, I think, something that folks in community radio have felt for decades, right, is that we're, we often use the word, we're accessible. And often that means we have an open door. We, we, you, know, you can come in, you can get trained. But then we like, well, the folks, they're not coming in the door. Right. Well, we announced it on air. Uh, I mean, now it's it's on on our website. We open our door, but the same folks keep walking through the door. And it sounds like what what you're talking about here, Vanessa, is is that that is that simply it, it probably maybe never was enough, really, if we think about it. But certainly is not enough. Is that, is that what you're saying? No, it's not enough. You have to, you know, take your equipment and your resources. Um, out into the neighborhoods and into the communities yeah. and into other spaces and give people really small ways to interact with you and create content and collaborate. And not everything is going to be like a one-hour live weekly show. Right. But there's all these other more feasible ways of working with people and maybe that's like giving them five minutes once a month to call in and do their update or report from whatever movement that they're involved in. I think it's a really good point because I, I, I've heard a lot of people asking the question about how do we bring people into our station and you're really saying you really need to go out of the station and invite people. You know, it, you have to do the outreach. People aren't just going to come in the door. Well, and part of the issue, I think, to me, is that uh, sometimes stations come at things with like a menu of things that they have for the community. You can be on air, you can record a PSA, you can do this, you can do that, you can do a table, whatever else. And sometimes focusing in on one or two things for the community and making a really focused effort to try to build some relationships in those communities oftentimes pays off the biggest dividends. I think of like a station like KRCL in Salt Lake, which does a podcast partners program where they go out to nonprofits and others in the community and say, hey, we have facilities. We can help you get on the air with a podcast and help provide these kinds of things for you as a service, as opposed to, well, go do a table, go do this, go do that. For a lot of people who are super busy, it's just a lot more difficult to try to figure out what are the 25 things I want to do 
if you can give me one thing, one way that I can engage in your station and do something in a different way, that really helps make the station a lot more accessible. I mean, and to your question, Paul, uh, volunteering at a university LPFM, one of the things that I'm oftentimes blown away by is that students still find radio relevant, but they don't listen to it necessarily on the radio. They're, right. they're listening to it on their phones. But it really is about the programming. It's about the content. If you can keep it engaging, you can keep it relevant uh, to a lot of the things that Vanessa has said, if you go out into the communities, if you get people telling stories, those kinds of things still matter to people. There is still tremendous power in helping people feel like they're connected with others. That's the voice of Ernesto Aguilar. He is the program director at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. You've also just heard from Vanessa Graber of Philly Cam and WPPM, station manager there in Philadelphia. And you're listening to Radio Survivor here at the Grassroots Radio Conference in the Native American Student and Community Center at Portland State University in front of a live audience. Thank um, you all. And we're talking about community radio, uh, a five-year plan, right, for community radio. What's, gonna, what's coming down the pipe for community radio in 2023? 2024 is really the 2020, well, you know, October 2023. This year's yeah. done. 2018 is over. <laughs> My name is Eric Line. I'm here with Paul Reese-Mandel and Jennifer Waits. And, you know, Ernesto, you were just talking about college radio, which, you know, is my first love. And uh, so you volunteer at KTRU's LPFM, which is, K well, give me the correct call letters. The, the official call letters, so it, long, long story, but all known popular is KTRU, KTRU, but its actual LP call letters are KBLTLP. Got it. And you- Bacon, so, lettuce, tomato. So. And you do a metal show, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Don't let the outfit fool you. So, there you go. so we have we have many secret lives, and so there've been a lot of discussions today about um, some community radio stations that have an aging population of participants. And so, since you have the lens of being at national at NFCB and interacting with stations all over the country, and also participating at a college radio station, I'd love to hear your advice for the next five years and what you think stations could be doing um, to encourage participation by, by younger people? Something that I, I have gotten a, a new awareness of, it's so interesting. So I was a program director for 12 years. I was a news director before that at a station. And within community radio, and I, I know that some folks will feel this, um, there's always resistance about what, how you program things. Um, is it completely up to the DJs? Is it completely up to the station? How do all those things work? And there's always a push-pull, and it varies from station to station. And sometimes, one of the things I've realized in working with students is that sometimes helping guide them through programming can be tremendously helpful and can be a gateway for young people. Uh, with, with the example of, of KTRU, the station has a particular playlist that you're required to share some things an hour that are chosen by the students. Mm -hmm. And then other things you can choose yourself. But for a young, and for somebody who has been schooled in community radio, that feels a little antithetical. You go, well, why is somebody telling me what to play? But when you take a step back and you begin to think about it from the perspective of an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old who doesn't have a knowledge of blues, who doesn't have a knowledge of metal, who doesn't have a knowledge of a lot of things, and is, this is an exposure to them, 
this opens up a door and gives them mm -hmm. a chance to be become DJs in a way that they might have not have otherwise had, and they get exposure to their peers in a different way. So for stations, one of the things I always recommend to folks is to try to think about ways to make your station most welcoming to those young people so that the bar is not so high to get a chance for them to participate and to feel a little bit more included. And frankly, and I say this in the kindest way possible, sometimes it's time to step out of the way a little bit mm. and to to listen and to withhold our judgments because all of us regardless of who you are and whatever age you are had a point in your life when you really enjoyed something and you really really were into it and there was always that guy and i say guy because you <laughs> nine times out of ten it's a guy who is in the room kind of with their arms folded and mm -hmm. saying well back in my day it was this and that and whatever else don't be that guy, because that day is over and this day is here, and it's time for us to take a step back and listen to what young people have to say and, and not judge and give them an opportunity to be a part of this community and be a lot more welcoming. Um, I was inspired going by KBU and seeing how they are attempting to change their culture to be more accepting and be more open to people and listen to when there are differences and respond compassionately and respond with patience. And we need a lot more of that. And I think if stations can be a lot more open in that way for young people, I think that, that leadership changes fundamentally. Vanessa, you're in the great city of Philadelphia, which did not have community radio until you were able to build a low power FM. And an, there's another company based in Philadelphia, <laughs> which is one of the largest internet providers in the country. And you sort of pointed out something in, an early, in, a, in another session of being there with, with this company. Um, Why are you doing this? The company is called Comcast, <laughs> and they're not just a. You're ruining my big reveal, Eric. <laughs> they're not just an internet provider, but they're also a cable, know, a content a creator. Content creator. And an interesting thing I hadn't thought of, you pointed out, right, is that often we think about things like network neutrality and, and communications freedom as going down party lines, right? We often sort of think there's one party that's anti and one party that's pro. Although anyone who's worked on the ground, and there's many of you who have here much more so than I, know that it's very rarely as simple as that. And in a company town, kind of everybody's on the payroll. So yes, every day when I walk to work uh, in Center City, I have to look at the two towers and the eye of Mordor <laughs> that is the Comcast buildings. And it is a daily reminder of, you know, our, our purpose and our goals, you know, and it's like every time I see it, I got to say, keep your eyes on the prize, like, because... Um, that's what we're up against, mm -hmm. right? Uh, big, giant corporations that have unlimited resources, that employ a lot of lobbyists, who are spending a lot of time in Harrisburg at our state capitol um, lobbying and also in City Hall. So going to City Hall to advocate for our franchise agreement, you know, there's at least a dozen Comcast people there, you know. And, and, and the franchise agreement for people who don't know, I mean, this is the money that comes from uh, people's paying for cable that then is, some of it is funneled to cities in exchange for the use of the right of way, the public way where these cables actually go. And some of that goes to stations like, like Philly Cam. 
Right. So, uh, you know, and they, they lobby against uh, public access and net neutrality. And so um, Philly has a, a, a lot of activists and organizers, a lot of social movement stuff happening. So um, we protest Comtest at least a couple times a year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's always uh, actions there. And they're the target of a lot of other campaigns, too, that people don't know about. You know, they get huge tax breaks. Um, they also lobbied against the um, paid sick day law that uh, city council passed. So oh. one thing we don't have to do... Do they own restaurants? No, but they didn't want to pay their part-time workers for sick days. So, that you know, they lobbied against that. And that's one thing we don't have to do is educate people about why... Uh, Comcast uh, should be resisted. Uh, people are pretty aware about that. Uh, so what we try to focus on, again, is mobilizing people to action to um, offer another narrative to our legislators uh, at city council, at Congress, as we try to get the discharge petition signed by a House of Representatives, um, and so the I, discharge petition, you mean uh, this would be the, the House of Representatives formally saying that they reject the FCC's decision to get rid of network okay. neutrality? Yes, and then that would put the Congressional Review Act up for a vote. And so those are really complicated things that we try to let people know what's happening. And it's, it's really important that people in our city know about all these things because, like I said, it it's just so much more than just access to information. Like, they're lobbying on a lot of other issues. Uh, people are, they think they're just lobbying on media issues, but they're involved in a lot of other special interests as well. So you want the information, and then you want to try and give some guidance for action. And, you know, I think, I think everyone in this room, you know, we said Comcast, we get a sense, and, and listeners, you know, listening, you know, they, they feel, they don't have warm feelings, don't have warm, fuzzy feelings for Comcast. But you, in Philly, you're sort of, it's sort of like you're, you're in a company town, you feel it much more so. And so I'm curious if you, if you have some guidance for folks here from way further away in the country, where, you know, maybe Comcast is one of the local cable providers. And every, you know, everyone's sort of like, well, you know, you never like your cable provider. C'est la vie, right? They're, you know, they're always, these companies always kind of suck. But what are you going to do? What kind of advice do you have for stations here, thinking that in five years, a company like AT&T, a company like Comcast or Verizon, is going to be pivotal, probably, in, in both the health of your community and your democracy, but your station as well. What kind of advice do you have for people to help educate their listeners? Well, pay attention to what's happening at the FCC. There's a lot of uh, good publications and websites and this podcast as well. You know, like that's the first thing, taking a personal responsibility to following what's happening with all the media issues, not just LPFM. Radiosurvivor.com. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Um, join organizations like the Media Action Grassroots Network, which is um, you know, led by the Center for Media Justice. Organizations like Free Press also put out a lot of information that you can then give to your community. Like, I'm not having to write or create any content around this. It's already being created by other organizations. So how do you get that in front of your community? You know, I mean, it's it sort of, I, I think it's, to me, it's like you can 
have folks inside the station who, and, you, and who kind of understand what's going on. But often they may be station leadership, highly involved volunteers, but even your, your average uh, DJs and such may not, may not really grasp it. How, do you, how are you getting this in, you know, promulgating this and sort of helping to spread the understanding? Um, I have personal relationships and I talk to people when I see them and uh, we have a lot of meetings and we do a lot of events in the community and we have film screenings and we have a programmer retreat where we talk about these things. I send out emails. Uh, I mean, all the traditional ways of putting yeah, information you, out there. You say all those things because they're obvious to you. Mm. But um, <laughs> I worked at a station for a while and I never went on a programmer retreat. So, well, what I'm saying is that their information is out there. You just have to tap into the the sites that offer that. I mean, there there are toolkits and things that you can give to people. Um, I text people too. I you know I text them about net neutrality stuff or things that are happening. I think again, it's like cultivating the community. I'm not just talking to them about that, but other things. And um, again, like deploying people to represent your station in other community settings and then being um, aware enough to know what the main points are. Like, oh, okay, you're going to this prison health summit conference. Okay, make sure you tell people about these three things. Mm. So we have like a, a tabling training, you know, to like, again, we put information on our tables and we, we get it out to people. But most importantly, we make media around it. We do TV shows and make videos and do radio shows about it. And that's like the best and the easiest way to communicate with people. And if people want to avail themselves of those programs, how, what's the best way to see them out here in You can go to our website, <laughs> phillycam.org, our YouTube page. phillycam.org. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And phillycam at YouTube. Um, and then there's a lot of great Pacifica programming that talks about these issues as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the talk on public affairs shows have done coverage on issues like net neutrality. And I'm sure people will be talking about the Cable Act in the next week since we all heard about what was happening with that. I think for stations, and I think, Paul, you're asking a really good station a question, how does a station start to, to take this stuff on? I, I think it's good to break it down a little bit, and focus on small things and what you can do. Perhaps it's doing a small podcast that explains something, and a few of the things that Vanessa pointed out, there's a lot of things that Free Press has put online that you can literally print out and read on the air or bring a guest on to talk about those things very briefly. Put it on your website, maybe do a series. There are small steps that any Mm -hmm. station can take because I know when you begin to think about these topics, they can be a little bit intimidating. But if you compartmentalize it like a radio show or think about it as a news arc or a series of stories, telling it one piece at a time um, is accessible for most every station. You've got the equipment, you've got people that are excited, that are looking for things to do oftentimes. A good project is get educated about this issue and talk to your community about it and how relevant it is and what it means to the people right in your neighborhood. You know, know, Vanessa, I mean, you, you said something, then Eric kind of noted, you said you know, these D, uh, staff retreat, DJ retreat, and that's a place to educate people. And I think back for each wave of creating low-power FM, and really to create any community radio station, any community, was an education process in that community for people to understand 
why this radio station should exist in the first place, why it should be built. And usually that probably required, in most cases, educating all these potential volunteers, all these people who wanted to help build this station, in how to educate, right? Because don't think inside offices right now, well, maybe not right now, because it's Saturday night, but you never know, in Comcast, they aren't educating their employees with what they want them to know about the relevant laws, about the relevant uh, uh, issue items, the things that they would like their employees to consider when voting, right, to protect their jobs, to protect their way of life. And it seemed to me that's kind of a powerful thing that we don't often think about of thinking of our staff and volunteers and to say, how do we educate everybody here on staff about network neutrality and to understand the role that this plays and, and, and in ways that, that they can, of course, maybe talk about on air, but instead of it necessarily being a half an hour, it can be in the middle of, of their show, just a quick drop saying, hey, look, this is happening. And maybe you saw that John Oliver thing. Well, this is you know, why it's important here at our station. Um, and and uh, on top of the other networks, right? You said that they're texting their friends, they're telling their friends and getting it out there. Uh, I think you know, one, one theme that's also come out, I think, in this grassroots radio conference here in Portland is radio as a platform, right? And by platform meaning we're bigger than a transmitter and an antenna and maybe a computer that streams on the internet, right? So, and, and part of that platform are these personal networks, these people that you know and your programmers know and all of you know when it spreads out in the community. And then we also have these other ways in which, in which we uh, think of platform. Maybe that's why we call it community radio, <laughs> right? It's not just the radio. It's not just the radio. So thinking forward now in 2023, I'm going to first dial us back to like 2013, five years ago, because back then you couldn't have a low power FM station in Portland or in Philadelphia or Chicago. It w and in fact, it was about five years ago now, October, in which many of you in this room and people across the country were now rushing to get applications together to try and get these stations. But also five years ago, uh, you know, people, people didn't periscope. They probably weren't thinking of Instagram the same way. I don't think people periscope anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that may be true. I'm an old man. Um, but there, it changes underneath our feet. Twitch. It's twitch now. It's all Twitch now, right? And it, but it's a little bit like it's a little bit like the bathwater, you know, and we just sort of get used to it. But it's all surrounding us, so does, so we're going to get the technology crystal ball out here, or however you want to take this question. But so Ernesto, I'm going to throw it your way. If community radio is just is a platform, it's a community organization dedicated to 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 all many of the ideals we've put here, and radio is just a component. What are the growing components? What are these other areas that stations should be thinking about right now where they need to be engaged? Well, I think the secret sauce is really what we've talked about here during this conversation. 
teaching people about how to talk to people in their communities about any given number of issues, training them to be that next generation or next group of leaders in their communities who can articulate and share that perspective within a community and bring it together. Because to what you've said, there's, of course, Twitter Live, Facebook Live, Instagram TV, Snapchat, lots of different platforms out there. But what community radio has is that connection to community. And I think from there, it's really a matter of fortifying the people who are within these stations with a deeper sense of education about their role within the community and the station's position in that community and how to take that message beyond just those platforms into a much bigger forum. So it's community radio as as school, <laughs> as as a training program, as a, as as a jobs program. Maybe even if you're not training people right that second to make radio, what do you what do you think of that that Vanessa? Freedom schools. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think that we should be training people to be civically engaged and to be. Um, uh, using all the tools in their toolbox uh, to change the narrative out there. And I see radio as one of the many tools that we can use. And so getting people to think about other ways of content distribution, um, I think, is going to be growing for us in terms of, like, um, how we're evolving with our own training programs and education and, and like we said earlier, like meeting people where they're at and offering more than just a radio frequency yeah. um, to get their message out there. What the, are some of the training programs that you've been adding recently? Because th that might give us a glimpse into where things are going, mm -hmm. Vanessa. Well, we changed from a general orientation to intro to community media to have more of a like media literacy um, aspect to it and explain the history of the fight for public access and the fight for community radio. Um, so that was the first thing. And then um, teaching people how to make radio because we were getting a lot of podcasters uh, and people don't like creating programs alone in their house or their back room. They want to come and collaborate and meet other radio nerds. And so um, we, again, in wanting to engage them and work with them, we realized we had to teach them how to change their format. So uh, we offer now a class called Production Planning for FM Radio, where we show them about mm. the radio schedule and how the programming works and, and creating blocks of content and regular features and segments and the timing of it and booking guests and marketing. So that anybody who was new um, whether they're a retired person or a college student, they could plug in, um, you know, and all be kind of at the same level. We offer just a board operator class because a lot of people came with solid content ideas. They had all the connections. They could uh, definitely deliver the content, but the technology was a real barrier. People that, like, just couldn't bend down to do things or their vision is going or... They just get anxiety as soon as they go live, and it's just like overwhelming for them. So we realized, okay, well, we really need to train a group of just board operators that are going to help them get over the technological barrier. And so now we are supporting people who have the content 
with the technical part because we don't have like paid engineers that are like there all day. Like at commercial stations, you know, you have that luxury. Um, we're now um, starting to do stuff on investigative news journalism. We want to teach people about that uh, using data. Um, again, because you can't do that in commercial media. They are no longer funding that. So we can wait eight months for an investigative piece. So there's people that want to do that. So now we're offering Spanish language classes um, for audio production because it was really hard for people that they do speak English, but still the radio terms are really technical. So now we're doing orientations in Spanish and um, video editing and audio production in Spanish as well. Again, trying to make it accessible to them. Um, and we started a partnership with Liberty Resources that um, represents disability uh, community. Mm -hmm. And so we're um, now doing radio shows in the TV studio to kind of like make it easier for them to um, be able to participate. So, um, you know, and, and we do special and individualized classes, what, what's kind of like akin to independent studies. So again, like, not being so tied to like a highly structured educational curriculum, mm. but also mm -hmm. say, okay, like, what do you want to learn? Like, what yeah. is your time frame? Like, what is your budget? Like, we'll, we're going to find a way to get you these skills by like pairing you with someone. I think something that we've lost is like mentorship and apprenticeships. And there's people that are older that are retiring and they're dying and they're getting sick and they're going away and they're not passing on these skills to younger people. So we're trying to especially get young people of color like trained on technology and engineering part of radio, which is something that they oh, yes. have an interest in. And we don't have enough people, young people of color who are on the technical side of radio. So yeah, there's a big concern about engineers. They're not being that next generation of engineers. Yeah, and teaching women as well. Like mm -hmm. that's my personal goal is to learn more about engineering and uh, the science behind transmission. Um, one of the newer classes, again, that people wanted was virtual reality. And it's like something we're not using. But yeah. again, people are using their phones. And again, people just, they'll abandon a technology really fast if something better comes along. So you better be paying attention to mm. what that something better is and try to be ahead of the curve. <laughs> you know, that leads me to a question you, you painted a, a dystopian picture for 2023 a little earlier in this conversation in which you sort of predicted kind of the internet spigot being turned off, becoming a one-way, right? Well, we're just going to receive stuff and not be able to transmit it. Let me throw out a different dystopian scenario in 2023. You know, right now still about 90% of the population still listens to, to radio in the United States at least once a week, but they find that, say, millennial households don't even own a radio any longer. Not even a single receiver. No radio, no car. No radio, no car. So 2023 now, uh, there's a proposal in front of the FCC that says, well, nobody listens to radio. Well, you get this great, really valuable spectrum. So really, that should just become a data service. So your, your, uh, your low-power FM station, that's wonderful. You get to keep your, you, you, you get to keep your license, but you're, you're a data service now. And your 50,000-watt station, it's a data service now. Um, what do what do community radio stations do? How what happens then? 
Ernesto, you want to take a stab? I, I think that for, I think you're probably referring to the data, data section, you're is oftentimes used quite a bit by Content Depot. But I, I'm like, I'm like, which it's, is, it just becomes all data. Yeah. It's you're getting rid of audio. There's right. no more analog. So screw analog. Right. So for and I think that's going to be really a significant fight coming up in the next year or so because for C-band and for many of those other data areas that there's a whole debate as to whether that's going to be auctioned off or whether it's going to be given that, away. That's all satellite. Yeah. yeah. And for. For Content Depot, which is kind of the information superhighway for content, um, you get everything from Democracy Now! on it to lots of other programs that use that level. Um, there's going to be a, a much bigger fight over what stations are going to let go of what segments they've yeah, got. Yeah, but I'm talking that. about let's say they come in and say, no, FM is no longer analog, it's no longer analog audio. Yeah. We're going all digital. What, what, what is that? What, you know, I don't think that's a crazy, crazy thing. That could I think we're 10 here. years out for that. You think though. we're 10 years out? I don't know. Vanessa, yeah, do you want Will to take Will the pirates still be there? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I want to know. What, I, what I, happens? At this point, I've completely abandoned my post at WPPM <laughs> and I'm camping out again and disrupting. <laughs> Too dystopian of a question. Yeah, I mean, if it gets to that point, then, you know, I might have to get swallowed by the movement, you know. But um, it, anything's possible. I don't trust anything that uh, is happening in this administration. It's quite unpredictable, and that's what feels so unsettling, I think. We... we there's been a lot of predictable things from the FCC, like they're bureaucrats, right? They do a lot of things with consistency, but we're not seeing that right now. So anything is possible. I mean, I think I'd rather shift a conversation to how we can fight back and how we can organize ourselves. And that's like really my vision is for all of these new stations to be working together and to form a powerful voice and constituency that's making a lot of noise and disrupting and agitating and making sure that our um, stations are represented and that at least, you know, we are trying, you know, yeah. to advocate for ourselves and, and, and resisting, you know, and I, I feel that a lot of people feel alone in building their stations and I think that's part of what we're doing here is like you're not alone. Um, we have a, a, a huge movement here, and we do wield a lot of power, and um, we, we can defeat Comcast. I mean, we really can. We can defeat um, the National Association of Broadcasters. We can do a lot of things, and so I, I don't want people to give up hope, but I also want people to keep in mind that this dystopian future is a very real possibility, if we don't make some major changes and get organized. And this is, I think, where the role of education for stations comes in, really spending a lot of time getting on the air and talking to people about this, these issues and trying to break it down because I think part of the problem is oftentimes people may not understand it. A lot of people are very, very busy and need this information in a digestible format that's fairly short, simple, and to the point and really ensures that it explains why this is relevant to them and gives them information about how to contact 
legislators, how to be involved, organizations that are supporting this work, and to use these platforms that we have while we still have them as community media organizations to start to really nudge people to really start talking to their neighbors and also talking to their lawmakers about why we care about these things. Yeah, agreed. I mean, uh, there's a lot of potential here, right? I mean, this room is like full of talent. Like everybody has so much to to contribute. I mean, there's there's just a lot of brilliance, you know. Uh, there's no reason why we can't put our brains together and formulate a plan of attack to save our stations on the internet. And I'm tired of waiting for big national organizations to come and save us and do the policy work. Grassroots organizing is, is what is going to save the internet and community radio. And if you don't get with the program, then you deserve to lose it, you know? <laughs> That's an ultimatum from Vanessa Graber of Philly Cam and WPPM station manager there. The voice you heard prior to that was Ernesto Aguilar, the program director at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. This is Radio Survivor uh, being recorded live at the Grassroots Radio Conference. You know, we just have uh, just a couple minutes left here. And, you know, I think a thing I, I keep hearing in here, I heard, you know, partnerships, outreach, and, it, you know, it's building this solid foundation. And I'll admit, I threw you a really terrible question, uh, <laughs> a dystopian question. But I think, you know, part of... What, what I keep hearing is that I think there was a time in which you could have a community radio station and you can put it on the air and someone's going to find you because they're going to spin the dial and you're there, right? And, and they, they didn't have serious satellite radio. They didn't have podcasts. They didn't have internet radio. They didn't have lots of other things to choose They from. had dials. Yeah, exactly. You even had a dial. So, and that, that has slowly become less and less true. And it hasn't made the medium any less important or vital. We can argue in many ways made it more important and vital over the years. But you just don't get stumbled upon like you used to. And it's fantastic that you know any of us can take out our phone right now and Facebook Live in a way that we only dreamed about just 10 years ago. To have, your, to have a phone that's basically a broadcast device wherever you are, but it also means lots more people are out there doing it. There's so much more to, more to choose from. But it sounds like, you know, when you're out there in the community and building partnerships, and partnerships, I think, is also, you mentioned many partnerships that Philly Cam has put together, uh, Vanessa, that that's part of that strength. And, and it was sort of a loaded question, the idea of, this, of, of FM going away. Um, as an analog thing, because I feel like if your station, and maybe, maybe I'm, uh, this is too mamby-pamby, if your station has built these alliances and has become this important vital center for people to get educated and to communicate, whether it's with a podcast or whether it's with you know, an, internet sta an internet station, whether it's over FM or through uh, whatever vowelless new .com that starts up, um, that that's going to be what, what maintains it, right? And that radio is a medium, right? But it's just one, it's just one medium. And if we put all of our eggs in that one basket and the medium goes away for whatever reason, then our communities are at a real loss. But if we've built 
lots of baskets. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really stretching this metaphor. No, now, it's a good so. point. No, because that's <laughs> what I mean. It's what Vanessa was talking about. Yeah, that's what uh, I think I'm here a little while ago about community radio, community media being uh, uh, transitioning. I would say into an educational institution, like a library where you learn how to make media or be a community organizer. But also like using all the other tools in your toolbox, like social media, like live streaming platforms, like public access television. I mean, like doing live events in the community. There's a lot of ways to get your message out. I love radio, radio is my thing. I identify as a radio producer, but I take photos, photos I shoot video, yeah. I write blogs. You know, we do all the other things too. And you, you just can't divorce yourself from that and compete in the media market. You have to uh, repurpose your content for the other platforms. It's imperative if you want to continue to involve and bring your content to your community. It's important for us to think about, regardless of how big or small you are, if you've just got radio, other kinds of things, to start visualizing ourselves as multi-platform organizations. Because we've got radio, that's certainly one level, but as Vanessa's pointed out, you've got social, you can also do video. As you pointed out, Paul, Everybody can be a video producer with an iPhone or an Android phone, or, and these things are high-quality stuff that's easy to post on YouTube, post on Instagram, anywhere else, and to think about our organizations beyond just radio, but how do we start reaching people and think of our toolbox as a much bigger thing than just the analog signal? I mean, when I did college radio, we didn't have any of this stuff. It was so hard to get people to tune into your show. I see this as, like, like so awesome that we have all these other ways to tell people about what we're doing and mm-hmm. to document it and distribute it. It's, it's a real joy to tap into the, a lot of these things that are free, even. And I think it just enhances what we do. It's fun. It's innovative. And you are reaching people, as you said, that will never get a radio or tune into your station or stumble upon it. I think that's a great place to wrap up this edition of Radio Survivor. Vanessa Graber from Philly Cam, thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Ernesto Aguilar Aguilar of uh, the NFCB, thank you very much. I'm Paul Reismandel. I'm Jennifer Waits. Eric Klein. Thank you guys uh, here at the Grassroots Radio Conference. It was wonderful. Uh, thank you to the organizers of the Grassroots Radio Conference. Thank you to KBU. Who else gets thanked for making the Grassroots Radio Conference a thing? Our audience. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you, Betty, Betty McCardle. Becky Myers. Becky Myers, co-chairs. All the fantastic volunteers. And all, all the many volunteers. Thank you so much. Uh, you got comments, send us our way. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. That's where we are, radiosurvivor.com. Thank you, everybody.